Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hello and welcome to World Weekly from the Financial Times. I'm Gideon Rachman. Today's podcast is devoted to one subject, Russian nationalism, and to one author, my colleague Charles Clover, who's just written a fascinating book on the subject entitled Black Wind, White Snow, The Rise of Russia's New Nationalism. Charles, uh, thanks for coming in to talk about the book. Um, Thank you for having me. How did you get interested in the subject and when? I've been reporting on Russia since the late 1990s, and I've become interested in these bohemian coffeehouse nationalists. I became acquainted with one of the protagonists in this book, a guy named Alexander Dugin, very early in my reporting career, and I just kept up contacts with him over the years. I've been interested in how he and other who have gone from being considered these marginal figures to being almost in the center of the establishment. These are establishment pundits with talk shows on national television channels and professorships at major universities. It's not them moving into the establishment. It's sort of the establishment moving over towards them because there's nothing different about what people like this have been saying for the last 10 to 15 years. It's just that the national debate has changed so radically. And as you point out in the book, the rhetoric of some of these thinkers like Mr. Dugan has now entered the vocabulary of Vladimir Putin. We'll talk in a while about whether he actually believes it. But just give us a sense first what the ideas are. You identify the idea of Eurasianism as as very central. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't want to go so far as to say that Putin actually believes in any of this, but it is unmistakable that the rhetoric of the regime, the words the regime uses and the vocabulary it uses to identify itself and its goals has changed dramatically and has started to use these buzzwords or dog whistles from the nationalist movement. The main one that I've been focusing on is the word Eurasia. Um, because that is a very loaded term for Russian nationalists, and it refers to a theory of Russian nationalism which began in the 1920s with a group of Russian exiles who fled the Bolshevik Revolution, and they created a theory of Russia as Eurasia, which they saw as the Russian Empire reborn as a nation that combined all of the advantages of an empire, i.e. being very large and spanning an entire continent, with a nation which is something that is very socially cohesive and has singular goals and mission. They wanted to modernize the Russian Empire as a super state. This idea of Russia as Eurasia has spanned a century, and that's what my book is about, the way this idea has gone from thinker to thinker and finally wound up in the upper reaches of the Kremlin. And it's something that Putin and other people in the Russian state use in a kind of a deniable dog whistle fashion when they make speeches, they refer to Eurasianism or they refer to some of these thinkers by name. I guess in the aftermath of the Cold War, we thought that Russia was going to cohere towards the values of the West. It would become something like a European state. Is Eurasianism saying, no, no, Russia is different because there's an Asian part to its identity? And if so, what is that Asian part? That's right. The original Eurasianist philosophy saw Russia not as the heir to the European Enlightenment. And they saw Russia as the most recent in the lineage of the great steppe tribes of the Mongols, the Huns and the Scythians, the latest incarnation of the 
these savages that ruled the inner continent. This was very much a product of the times. I mean, the early part of the 20th century when the theory was created was very much in vogue to see primitive and savage as something positive. But they also saw it as a critique of the Western bourgeois mentality, and they saw that Russia was a separate civilization, that it did not belong to the West, that it would never be bourgeois and Western. Essentially, it's the same thing that nationalists say anywhere in the world. It's the same kind of dialogue or conversation they have when they say, you know, we are unique. We are not like you. We have been humiliated. There are foreign powers trying to keep us down and trying to obfuscate and hide the truth from us. We must be true to our origins, to our traditions. And that's essentially what this movement says. And they've created this philosophy around this concept of Russia as a separate civilization state. And does the implication of the Eurasian, the Asian bit of the identity, does that then lead you to say, well, we're not going to embrace liberal democratic values that maybe if you look back to the high or the Mongols, uh, <laughs> there's a justification for a violence at the centre of the state. I mean, nationalists in general are, are not great liberals, and they tend to see their own cultural traditions as somehow separate to the dominant narrative of Western liberal democracy, and they tend to use these traditions to justify in theoretical terms something that's a native approach to a government, which is usually not <laughs> democracy. It's a, We are predisposed culturally towards authoritarianism. And that's something that, that Russian nationalists all say, is that, you know, Russia is not by nature Western, bourgeois, liberal. We have our own traditions and we owe our heritage to these steppe tribes or to something completely alien to the West. And that's why they justify this unique dictatorship in a sense. And so if the domestic consequence is more of a tolerance for, as you put it, dictatorship, is the external consequence something that we then see played out in Ukraine, Georgia, and so on? Yeah. The other part of the theory is that Eurasia, from time immemorial, from the time of the Scythians and the Huns, this Eurasian inner stepland or Eurasian inner continent has always been a singular political unit, which goes through cycles of political consolidation and then political collapse and fragmentation and then being consolidated once again. And they also see a natural frontier, a natural geographic frontier to this super state. And this includes basically the territory of the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union, which they see as destined to be whole once again. And the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991 was an artificial event that must be redressed and that the mission of the Kremlin is to gather the lands once again into a single empire. So that's the ideological, if you like, origins of intervention in Ukraine. You see these kind of buzzwords and dog whistles popping up, like Putin is advancing this concept of a Eurasian Union. It was basically saying, we are declaring that we have a sphere of influence in our neighboring countries, in our former Soviet countries, and we are calling this Eurasia, and we are not going to be very happy if, for instance, the European Union signs an association agreement with Ukraine. They put a lot of pressure on Ukraine. Um, this ended up being the, the Ukrainian revolution, coup d'etat, followed by the invasion of Crimea, and then what's happened recently in Russian units going into eastern Ukraine. That is clearly a result of seeing in Ukraine and in the neighboring countries a key sphere of influence or national interest that they are going to defend. 
whether that's due to some ideological reason or whether that's because they see it as natural Eurasia or something、mm. like that, it's not entirely clear why. I think there is a consensus at the top in the Kremlin that this is a course serious national interest, and they will go and they will defend it and they will sacrifice. So it could just be realpolitik rather than ideology. There, what the Kremlin perceives to be national interests at stake in Ukraine. Why did they consider these to be national interests? Why in 2004, when there was a revolution in Ukraine, didn't they send troops into Donbas? Why didn't they annex Crimea then? So you think that maybe the difference is that between 2004 and 2014-15, you get the growth of this new nationalist ideology, which I, gives them the justification think, for saying. I think that is what happened. Putin has always been described as a pragmatist. I don't disagree with that. Putin is is a great politician. He's great at reading the. Tea leaves and navigating the political consensus in Moscow. He's always been described as a pragmatist, but ten years ago, pragmatism in Russia was you pay lip service to nationalism, but you really pay attention to your economic relationships with your main trading partners, to your relationships with Western creditors, to economic reform and growing the economy. And that was pragmatism. That was a decade, a decade and a half ago. Today, Putin is still a pragmatist, but pragmatism means you're invading Crimea. You're sacrificing billions of dollars in. Revenues and whole chunks of GDP growth in order to achieve today they see national interest in terms of territory rather than economic growth. Putin hasn't changed. He's he's still a pragmatist. It's just the context that Putin has to operate in has changed utterly, one hundred percent. And that is something that we can only explain by recourse to the cultural dynamics in Russia, to changes in society. But it's not because Putin told everybody to go out and be nationalists. Putin is reacting to the same social forces that everybody else is. I think. We talked about the Asian bit and the need to try to reconstitute the territories. A third element, it seems to me, is. A social conservatism. I mean, this is no longer, in a way, a revolutionary ideology. It's one that looks at the West askance for its promotion of gay rights, that embraces religion. Yeah, in that sense, rather different from the Soviet New Man idea. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They've taken social conservatism as a kind of new soft power. They're winning converts in Europe because European conservatives see Putin as standing up for、uh, traditional, values. traditional values and family values and things, and even the nation state.、Actually. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly, and the growth. Of Of traditional values in Russia is something that is certainly correlated with the growth of this new nationalism. It's something that you can't separate them. And finally, I mean, you've been in Beijing now more than a year, yeah?、Uh, yeah, two years. Two years.、Almost. China also had a resurgent nationalism. Do you see any、uh, links or comparisons between the Russian nationalism you were writing about in Moscow and Chinese nationalism? It is. There's a lot of interesting comparisons to huge superpower post-communist countries that are confronting the vacuum in ideology and in kind of a moral crisis. They've been kind of winging it for 20 years in terms of questions of the legitimacy of the government and also just that they've lost their signposts of how people should act and they're looking for new foundations. I think what's also happening is that. Both countries legitimized themselves for the last decade and a half in their economic growth. The, the governments were able to provide this super economic growth, which meant that the population really didn't ask too many questions about who was ruling and why. As long as their living standards were improving, that was great. But then both are starting to see that economic growth plateau for completely different reasons. Russia, because of the oil prices are falling and sanctions, and China, because its economic model needs to change. But the, the government is very aware that they're looking for alternative sources of legitimacy, and they're providing it. And the 
easy route is always nationalism. The easy route to political legitimacy is to say, well, we are the best Chinese. Once you say that, it takes the debate in a very predictable direction and you start to say the same things that nationalists always say, which is the foreigners are humiliating us and we need to fight back and there's a conspiracy to keep us down. And that is the same rhetoric that you see from the neo-Maoists in China that you see from the nationalists and the Eurasianists in Russia. Okay, Charles Clover, thank you very much. Uh, Your book, Black Wind, White Snow, is just published by Yale and out in the UK and elsewhere. Thanks very much and good luck with the book. Thank you very much, Gideon. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.